0: Monstro Mart. Uh, you can see it there in The Simpsons. Uh, if you remember, uh, they decide to visit this new supermarket in Springfield. Uh, it's called Monstro Mart, and you can see the slogan underneath there. Uh, it says, "Where shopping is a baffling ordeal." Well, that, that's how they roll at Monstro Mart. Right? So, if, you, if you've seen the episode, uh, if you shouldn't, you should. Uh, if you haven't, you should look it up. Uh, but at Monstro Mart, uh, product choice is absolutely unlimited. Uh, You can see how tall that place is, the shelves reach all the way to the ceiling. Uh, If you you want some nutmeg, uh, you can get yourself a five kilo box like and you're sort of walking around, uh, there are six aisles of olives, like that's like my worst nightmare, I, I really don't like olives at all, but there are six aisles of olives at, no, at Monstro Mart, uh, the express lane at Monstro Mart uh, is for people who have 1,000 items or less, uh, so everyone's kind of in, uh, 1,000 items or less, uh, that's, that's Monstro Mart, and the Simpsons decide to, to check out Monstro Mart, uh, of course, ultimately... Uh, they find the whole experience of Monstro Mart so overwhelming that they decide to go back to Apu's Quickie Mart, uh, if you're familiar with uh, The Simpsons. And, and what's interesting about this episode is that The Simpsons are making a deliberate decision to limit their choice. That's interesting, isn't it? They're making a decision to, to restrict their choice, to, to reduce their choice. Rather than experiencing the full range of choices that Monstro Mart has to offer, they settle for the limited range at Apu's quickie mart. They recognize that that's better for them. And I think we struggle with that because we've been told for decades, as long as we've been alive, uh, that maximum choice is good for us. Right? Maximum choice gives us things like freedom and, and autonomy and, and self-determination, right? all the things that are supposed to make us happy. But the Simpsons discovered, and we're discovering, that it doesn't. It just doesn't work. Uh, in 2004, uh, four, an American psychologist named Barry Schwartz, he, he wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. Uh, and in it, he says this. Uh, we can take... Oh, uh, maybe... Uh, we'll leave Monster out up for a little while. Uh, so uh, Tune into this quote, though. Barry Schwartz, uh, he says, Social scientists tell us that added options can only make us better off as a society. Uh, this view is logically compelling but empirically, it's not true. We're told that autonomy and freedom of choice are critical to our well-being, and choice is critical to freedom and autonomy. Uh, Nonetheless, though modern Americans, right, American book, modern Americans have have more choice than any group of people has ever had before, and thus, presumably more freedom and autonomy than ever before, psychologically, we're not better off. But you, you see the problem. We've got all this freedom, we've got more choice, we've got more autonomy than we've ever had before, but it's just not working. It's not making us happier. If anything, it's leading to higher levels of things like anxiety and depression. So we have bought into this lie, this lie, hook, line and sinker. Maximum freedom, maximum choice, maximum autonomy, freedom does not bring the happiness we crave. And of course, this idea that we can we, uh, take take down the uh, monster now. Uh, this idea that that having maximum choice that 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 that's good for us, it's best for us. That idea uh, is rife in our attitudes to religion and spirituality. For for example, uh, with my eye condition, those of you who don't know, I've got this eye condition, uh, and that means I'm not able to drive anymore, uh, and so I've been getting a, a whole lot of Ubers, uh, and uh, the vast majority of my Uber drivers are Sikhs. It's pretty similar with taxis, like, like lots of Indians, uh, and, and some of them are Hindus, some of them are Sikhs, many of mine are Sikhs, and I can almost guarantee how that conversation is going to go, because they're very pleasant, they, they ask, what do you do for a living, uh, I, I get in the car, we're we talking about this, I say I'm a pastor, they're eager to talk about religion, unlike most uh, Aussies, and at some point, this is what they say. They say, uh, but of course, everyone knows that all the religions are the same. That's just a given, right? All the religions are just like different rivers flowing into the same ocean, right? That's, a, that's something that Sikhs say. Are different paths going up the same mountain? Different roads leading to the same city. That's a good one when you're driving an Uber, right? Uh, right? Different roads going to the same. ultimately, any of those roads are valid. But that's what they say. And doesn't that sound so helpful? It's so inclusive, so so tolerant. But the truth is, it leaves us in the spiritual equivalent of MonstroMart. We've got this massive spiritual thirst, a longing for something more, but we're standing in front of a shelf that stretches to the ceiling, it's got thousands of types of water, and we've got no idea which one to pick. And we're terrified that if we pick one, we'll make the wrong choice. What if, something, what if a better variety of water comes along? We've got our freedom, our autonomy, our self-determination, but what good is that when you're dying of thirst and you just can't make a choice? That's our predicament. So this is the good news, right? The good news is that over the next two weeks, as we come to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to simplify things. He's going to reduce all those spiritual options down to two. There's really only two ways to live, Jesus says. Two choices. Uh, The first way is the Christian way, uh, the way of following him, of of being a part of his kingdom. Uh, If you look at the passage there in verse 12, uh, Jesus gives a a summary of that way. What's the essence of the Christian way? He says, So in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Uh, If you've been with us as as we've looked uh, through uh, the whole Sermon on the Mount, uh, you might remember that back in chapter 5, verse 17... At the very start of Jesus' sermon, he said to his disciples, along these lines, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, I don't want you to think that in starting this new kingdom, I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. Right? That's the Old Testament. Right? I haven't come to abolish it, I've come to fulfill it. Right? So Jesus is saying that as he comes to establish God's kingdom, there is something new going on. Something very new, but, but its newness doesn't abolish everything God's already said. It, it fulfills it. He said that right at the start of the, his sermon, and here he's saying right at the end of his sermon the same thing in verse 12. He's reiterating, uh, he, he wants his disciples to know that, that the kingdom he's establishing is kind of uh, in continuity with the, the Old Testament. It fulfills it, it, it sums it up, he says. And in particular, here he's saying it sums it up in what Ricky's just referred to uh, as this, uh, the golden rule. Now, uh, you, you might know, and if you're talking to uh, people who uh, aren't Christians, uh, uh, they, they might say to you, look, look at all the religions in the world ha- have the golden rule. They're basically on about the same thing. And that's kind of true. Like lots of them ha- have something along these lines, uh, but most of them have the negative form of this rule. Which basically says, don't do anything to anyone that you wouldn't want them to do to you. So, in Buddhism, for example, they say, hurt others, not in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Or Rabbi Hillel in Judaism, he says, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. So if you don't like being robbed by others, don't rob others. Or if you don't like being cheated, don't cheat others. If you don't like being lied to, don't lie to others. If you don't like being belted over the head, don't kind of belt other people over the head. you get the the gist? It's it's the negative form of this golden rule. Don't do anything to anyone that you wouldn't want them to do to you. But that's not quite what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, is giving us a positive form of that rule. He's saying in everything you do, Think about how you would want to be treated in a kind of positive sense and then go and do that for others. We've seen it throughout the sermon, right? If you enjoy, uh, if you enjoy receiving gifts from others, be someone who's generous, who gives to the poor. If you enjoy receiving mercy from others, uh, be merciful yourself. If you enjoy being loved by others, be loving yourself. Right? This is much more demanding With the negative rule, you can kind of retreat into your own little bubble and simply avoid offending people. You're not doing much good to anyone in a positive sense. You're just not offending anyone. But Jesus wants more than that, much more. He wants us as his disciples in everything we do, in every situation, to consider how we can be a blessing to others, how we would like others to treat us. And then he wants us to kind of actively treat others in that same way. And notice the motivation he gives us for living this way, right? It's not that treat others how you want to be treated so they'll treat you how you want to be treated, right? Generally, that might work. Like kind people tend to attract kindness, like Like all the time, like Jesus was pretty kind and people weren't kind to him. So it's not a kind of guarantee that it might generally work, right? But Jesus' motivation is different, isn't it? He says, this way of living sums up the law and the prophets, that's why we should live this way, because it's the essence of everything God said about how he wants his people to live. This is how uh, God wants his people to live, us as, his, as disciples of Jesus to live. That's the essence of the Christian way, verse 12. And in verses 13 to 20, Jesus zooms in on the way, right? He contrasts it uh, with the other way, another way. And that's why first he talks about two different roads, and second, he talks about two different trees, so first, have a look in verses 13 and 14. Jesus talks about these two different roads. Let me read it. He says, "Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it." That's not a complicated metaphor, I don't think. Like in terms of kind of comprehension, right? We're supposed to be there's these two roads. And the first is wide and spacious and smooth. Uh, it accommodates lots of people, Jesus says. Uh, but even though it's popular, uh, it's, it's easier in lots of ways. It actually leads to destruction, Jesus says. You can see that there. Uh, the other road is narrow. It's, it's more restrictive. It's more confined. It's, it's not popular at all, really. In fact, only a few people find it. Uh, but Jesus says it's the narrow road that leads to life. A life now and life forever. So what does this picture of these two roads teach us about the Christian way? About living, about walking the Christian path? I've got four things. Right. The first thing it teaches us is that the path of the Christian life is hard. I think back over Jesus' sermon, you might want to read it during the week, but you'll notice that the things that Jesus calls his disciples to... Are really hard. Right, being humble, being poor in spirit is hard. Pursuing purity of heart is hard. Loving our enemies is hard. Being merciful is hard. Being generous is hard. Living our lives to, to make our heavenly Father's name great, may His name be hallowed rather than our name great. That is hard, right? It's hard, but because in our sinfulness, in our innate desire for, for maximum freedom, right, maximum autonomy, uh, we chafe against the narrow road. We don't like it at all. We want things our way. So spiritually speaking, the the Christian path is hard. It's it's narrow. It's it's a a bit restrictive. We feel that sometimes. Uh, That's the first thing. Second, uh, this metaphor teaches us that that we can't determine what God's way is uh, simply by playing majority rules. Right? Because Jesus says the majority of people are on the wrong path. They're they're headed for destruction, Jesus says. Now, some of you might say, well, does that mean only a few people are going to be saved? To which I think the safest answer is what Jesus himself says in Luke 13, right? Because someone asks him that specific question. If you've got a Bible, you could flick to Luke 13. Uh, But uh, if you don't, let me read it. It's from Luke 13 in verse 23. Someone asked Jesus uh, that very question. Uh, They say, Luke 13, verse 23, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And notice Jesus' answer. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once uh, the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. You hear Jesus' answer. He says, don't concern yourself primarily with how many other people are going to be saved. Sort out yourself first, he's saying. Your primary concern should be whether you're going to be saved. Look what he says. Make sure you enter through the narrow gates. That's his answer. Make sure you're walking on the narrow path. So this metaphor teaches us that we can't determine what God's way is simply by statistics or by looking at the majority. That's relevant at the moment, right? Like the same-sex marriage thing. And what's, the, what's one of the refrains? Who wants to be on the wrong side of history? Know, as if statistics should just tell us, like the majority believes this, so yeah, I know that's how democracy works, but that, that's not how we work out what God's way is, just by the majority. Right? This makes that clear. Uh, the third thing this metaphor teaches us uh, is that it's really hard to be a Christian if you're a people pleaser. If you are someone who's desperate for the approval of others, if you always want to go with the flow of culture, if you never want to stand out from the crowd, if that's you, you'll find it very hard to be a Christian. Like Few find this right. Jesus knows that we struggle with this. Like uh, That's why throughout his sermon, he's repeatedly warned us about what? About not living our lives to be seen by others. To be noticed by others, to, to be applauded by others, right? He's, he's putting his finger on this issue that we have, that, that we want to please people, we want to be approved of by others. Remember chapter 6, don't give or pray or fast for the approval of others, right? Do those things, Jesus says, but but not for them, but for your heavenly Father's approval. And remember how the whole sermon started, right? Jesus spoke those beatitudes, those blessings, right? And really he was saying these are the kind of people who get God's favour, who have God's approval. It's the people who are humble, who mourn at their sin, who pursue peace, who are willing to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. Those are the people who have God's favour, who have God's approval, Jesus says. Of course, they're not the people that get the approval of the masses, So this metaphor teaches us that, that it is very hard to be a Christian if you're a people pleaser. Right? To, to, to walk this path, you, you, you have to be deeply convinced that it is much more important to have God's approval than have the approval of others because it's hard. And we tempted at many points to join the majority, to join the broad road because it's just easier. Now, the fourth thing we learn Uh, is that when it comes to spiritual things, to ultimate truths, ultimate destinies, ultimate realities, our likes and dislikes really don't matter that much. But I think we find that hard uh, because we live in the Facebook era, right? That's the era for us. Life is not about what's right or wrong or true or false or fact or fiction. It's about what we like, what we dislike, what our preferences are, what works for us. That's what life's about, and that's the approach most people take to spirituality. I think it seeps into the church, perhaps, right? So we choose our spiritual path because it's what we like, what we prefer, what works for us. So many times people will say to me, I'm sure someone said this to you, they'll say, Aaron, it's great that you're a Christian. I think it's great you're a Christian. It's great that you've found a path that works for you. That's your path. But I prefer the teachings of Buddhism or or Islam or New Age spirituality or atheism, right? That's my path. Isn't it wonderful? We've both got these paths. But that's not the point, is it? Look at this picture, right? That's getting caught up in the scenery of the path rather than looking at where the path's headed. Well, you'll notice what Jesus is concerned about. He's always most concerned about this. On one level, Jesus could not care less about your preferences, Maybe you prefer the scenery on the broad road. It's not as crowded, it's easier, it's not as restrictive, it's not as exclusive, right? You see, Jesus doesn't care that much about that, not because he's cruel, but because he's really loving. He loves you enough to tell you what's most important. What's most important is that you're on the path that ultimately leads to life rather than destruction, And Jesus is very clear that the only path that leads to life is the narrow path, the path of following him. The path really where you stop living for yourself and your own preferences and start living for him and his preferences. So why would you do that? I'm going to talk about this more at the end, but, but why would you confine yourself to this narrow path with Christ? Why, why am I so convinced that life now and forever is only found in knowing Christ? Let me tell you, it's not because I prefer Christ, or because I like him more, or because being a Christian works for me. That's not why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because it's true. I'm a Christian because I'm persuaded that Jesus is alive. Jesus is the only person ever who's actually conquered death. I'm persuaded by that. So he's the only person ever who can tell me how to find life both now and forever. So when people say to me, what about the other religions? I'm kind of like, what about the other religions? What do you mean, what about the other religions? Right, if you were walking down a road and you came to a spot where it forked into, I heard this illustration once, you're not sure which way to go, you know, like there's two paths before you. So what do you do? You look down on the ground and you see that there's these two people. Well, One of the people is dead and the other one's alive. And she's are like, oh, I'm racking your brain. like well, Which of these people will I ask for advice about which way to go? Well, I'm tipping, you're asking the person who's alive, right? They're probably more useful. But I'm not a Christian primarily because I like it or because I prefer it or because it works for me. I'm a Christian because I'm persuaded that Jesus is alive. My Buddha is not alive. Mohammed is not alive. Confucius is not alive. Joseph Smith, the, you know, with the Book of Mormon's on in Melbourne at the moment. right? Joseph Smith is not alive. But Jesus is alive. He really is. I'm persuaded by that. So Jesus is the only one who can tell me how to be on the path of life both now and forever. So you can see what Jesus is doing. He's trying to establish that there really are only two paths, two ways to live. You're, you're either with him or you're against him. And that's why in verses 15 to 20, he talks about these two trees, because they represent two different types of teachers, teachers who are either with him or against him. So first, have a look in verse 15. Jesus warns us about teachers who are against him, false prophets, messengers of God, false teachers. Uh, He says, uh, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. Notice Jesus' urgency here. He's not like, oh, you know, by the way, look after... He's like, watch out, be alert, be awake. You've got to be switched on to this, Jesus is saying. Because there's going to be these teachers who will come into the midst of the church and they'll look like they're wearing sheep's clothing, but underneath they're ferocious wolves. Watch out for teachers who at first glance seem to have all the marks of being a Christian. They pray the right way. They, they talk about the Bible a lot. Uh, their sermons are kind of jam-packed with, with all uh, very popular kind of religious-sounding cliches. Watch out for those teachers, Jesus says, because even though they look like sheep, they look like Christians. They're actually wolves. Wolves masquerading as sheep. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because these false teachers, although they claim to be prophets of God, messengers of God, they're actually messengers of Satan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, Such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul says. Why? Because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, therefore, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. We've got to hear Jesus' warning. Watch out for these teachers, these teachers who look like they're messengers of God. They sound like they're messengers of God. They're masquerading. they put on the show, a wonderful show, but they're actually messengers of Satan sent by him to destroy the flock of Christ. And that raises a pretty important question, doesn't it? If these teachers are so deceptive and destructive, how do we recognize them? That seems pretty important. If you've got a flock of sheep and there's going to be some wolves coming in, you, you want to be able to know how to recognize the wolves. Well, Jesus gives us two ways. I mean, there's more, but I think from here we can establish two ways. The first way is, is from the context of these verses because these false teachers are people who almost never preach about the narrowness of Jesus' kingdom. They're not necessarily preaching blatant heresy. In fact, it's possible that pretty much everything they do say is true. It's just that there's so much they don't say, you see. Over time, they leave out so much of the Christian message that everything they say, their whole message ends up being false. False. Uh, In particular, they'll leave out anything that seems too narrow or restrictive or hard. So they won't talk about people's sin. They might talk about sin in general, but they won't make you feel guilty about your sin. But you can't do that. Not in this day and age. But they won't talk about God's judgment. They might talk about justice. That's popular. But not so much God's judgment upon you. Uh, They pretty much won't talk about any aspect of the Christian life that's even remotely countercultural that might put them even close to the narrow road. we have got to be on the broad road, the spacious road, the inclusive road, you see. They want to avoid the narrow road at all costs. So that's one way we can recognize these teachers. It's from the context of these verses. The second way is from the passage itself, of course, because Jesus says, by their fruit you will recognize them. Look in verse 16. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Uh, Likewise, every tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus by their fruit you will recognize them. Oh, I think Jesus has particular things in mind here right because in his day, uh, there was a particular thorn bush, right? It's called the buckthorn. and everyone knew that its little berries uh, could look like grapes from a distance. Well, they kind of look like grapes, and there was a particular thistle that had flowers on it, and from a distance it could be mistaken for figs. Right, the people knew these plants, uh, but of course, if someone tried to make wine out of the berries from the buckthorn, or if they tried to kind of cook up some lovely jam uh, from the uh, the flowers of that thistle, uh, they'd realise they'd been conned. They'd been deceived. Likewise, Jesus is saying from a certain perspective, from a distance, these false teachers can look like real teachers. The fruit of their ministry can seem genuine because it's just so subtle, like little twists of God's word, just subtly leaving things out. But in the end, Jesus says these false teachers will be seen for who they are. They can't hide it forever. Bad trees will be revealed these are people who want nothing to do with Christ because they want nothing to do with his path. They're trying to get as many people as possible with them onto the narrow onto the broad path. And now let me stress, I'm not saying that, that we need to go on some kind of heresy hunting mission. Like some of you have a very acute radar for those things, you're kind of hear kind of a whiff of heresy or something you're kind of foaming at the mouth and you're just kind of let me at him kind of thing like like i'm not saying that but like and we know from the harsh at the start of this chapter jesus doesn't want us to be overly harsh or, or or judgmental in the way we treat others we've got to be cautious about condemning people as false teachers but on the other hand we should not be naive we can't be naive we've got to watch out we've got to be alert Because Satan will send these false teachers into Christ's flock. We have to recognize them and and name them and call them out. I was thinking I should name some names today. I I didn't really know which false teachers our church would be most vulnerable to. But let me say, I guess one thing is that the marriage thing is at the forefront of our minds, many of us, isn't it? That's a broad road thing. It's easy to go with the flow on that. And there are plenty of Christian teachers who are saying, you should go with it. Just go with the flow. I'm not convinced that that's in line with God's word. You'll hear more about that on Thursday night. But we've got to be alert to these things. Because in distorting the gospel, these false teachers are not only destined for destruction themselves, they're taking many to destruction with them. That's the warning. So uh, th- there it is, right? here. We've got the kind of spiritual mart. Lots and lots of spiritual options in this world. Uh, but Jesus boils it down uh, to two. Two ways to live. And he says, if you want to know life, uh, true life, both now and forever, uh, you've got to commit to the narrow path. It's the way that on the surface seems much harder and more limiting and restrictive. It's a good sell, isn't it? But right? if we're honest, that doesn't seem that appealing to us. Some of us, perhaps, are masochist. Is masochist the one where you like punishment? I think it is. Like some of us are like, give me the, give me the punishment, give me the hardship. However, most of us are like, no, 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 I want maximum freedom, maximum autonomy. Oh, I want to be able to keep my options open. Like, don't try to lock me into being a Christian because if I commit to Christ, like, what if a, what if a better offer comes along? Oh, I don't want to be committed to Christ on the narrow road. I'm going to miss out, right? So, so th- I think that's how a lot of us think, right? So, so what is it that's going to empower us, motivate us, uh, not just today, but for the rest of our lives, to keep making this choice that matters? You can hear that ultimate destinies are at stake here, right? Uh, so, what is it that's going to empower us to commit to Christ in His narrow way, even though it is hard, it's limiting, it's restrictive? Oh, I think it's a bit like getting married. Right, that was supposed to be funny. Uh, no, no, it is a bit like getting married. Uh, but I thought, you know, going from restrictive and hard and limiting, you, you might think uh, that was funny. Uh, but anyway, uh, but it, it is a bit like it is a bit like getting married because uh, when I uh, chose to marry Gabby, I eliminated a whole lot of other choices. Not because I was beating lots of women off with a stick or something kind of like, oh, no, I've decided on Gabby. You know, it's like, a, no, not like that at all. Uh, But it is true, isn't it? When you choose to marry someone, uh, you're choosing to restrict yourself to that woman, one woman, for the rest of your life. That's very narrow. It is so exclusive, so restrictive. So why do that? Well, I think for lots of reasons. But but for me, the central reason was that Gabby offered me something that I'd really always longed for. She offered me unconditional love and acceptance. That's pretty rare. During our time of dating, Gabby had seen a whole lot of my sin, my weakness, even shameful things. Not many other people have seen them. And yet my experience was, expecting rejection, was that she still loved me. She accepted me. And strangely, she even wanted to commit to me for the rest of her life. And so I knew I could commit to her. I knew I could do that and I would never miss out because even though on one level it was limiting, in another sense it was so liberating because I was experiencing the the life, the joy that only comes from being loved unconditionally. And that's what it's like in becoming a Christian, in choosing to live as a Christian. If you choose to follow Christ on this narrow way, you're you're eliminating lots of other choices. You're like the Simpsons. You're going from the spiritual equivalent of the Monstro Mart uh, down even smaller to Apu's Quickie Mart. Like you're going into the convenience store uh, that's kind of a closing down sale and they've got one chocolate bar left on the shelf and you're just like, yeah, anyway. Yeah, you're getting the idea. Like you're limiting your options. You're choosing to limit yourself to Christ for the rest of your life. Why do that? Well, because even more so than your husband or wife, or perhaps your best friend or your parents, Christ has seen you at your absolute worst. Remember, we looked at Revelation earlier in the year. He has these blazing eyes that pierce into our souls. Christ has seen the secrets in our hearts and minds, are the secrets that even you try to hide, that even you try to hide from everyone else. All the really ugly stuff. He's seen all of that, and yet instead of condemning your sin, He's willing to die for your sin. And notice what he's willing to do. Uh, Christ was willing to limit himself, to restrict himself, to take on human flesh, to limit himself to his narrow path all the way to his death on the cross for your sins. I think when you're really clear, when you experience that kind of unconditional love from Christ, you'll have no issue committing yourself to him. No issue at all for the rest of your life. So I said about Gabby, even though in one sense it's limiting, in another sense it's liberating. This is freedom and life and joy that only comes from walking the narrow way with Christ. Uh, let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, you know that uh, we live in a world with a kind of multiplicity of, of choices in pretty much everything we come across, including spiritual things. And so we pray that we would be really clear uh, on what Jesus is saying here, that there, there really are only two ways to live. We're either with him uh, on His on the narrow path as a part of your kingdom or, or we're not. And so I pray that uh, this day you'll give us a real deep conviction that we want to live with Christ uh, both because uh, he is is alive and he's the only one who can tell us how to find life both now and forever and because he's the only one who's shown us truly Our unconditional love, who's seen all our sin and yet was willing to die for it, uh, walking his narrow path all the way to his death on the cross for our sake. Uh, May these truths take root deeply in our hearts, I pray. Amen.